Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Friends, I hope you're doing well today. Heck, I've been locked in a battle with Captain COVID for the last two weeks, and but uh, I think I'm going to make it. And thank you so much for all your happy birthday wishes. Uh, yeah, I made another lap around the sun since I last talked to you, but I might sound a little bit rough, but heck, I'm going for it. You know, sometimes I find a story kind of like the last episode that just has to be told. Folks just keep skating through situation after situation of odd things happening to them that, well, well, wouldn't be such a bad thing if it didn't just leave more bodies in their wake than the outlaw Josie Wales. The trouble was, back in earlier times, police departments didn't have the modern tools that they have to communicate between jurisdictions that they have today. So if there was a killer staying busy working their craft, you know, all they had to really do was to move... to a different area, find some poor victim, do away with them, and then repeat, rinse and repeat, I guess you'd say, then move on again. The police would, in a whole lot of cases, think it was a one-off crime, which is a hard one to solve in the first place, but not knowing that the unsub had a few more under their belts scattered all over the place. So come on in, have you sit down, and let me tell you about somebody that had so many odd things happen around her that she was known as Hard Luck Betty. Betty LaFond Johnson was born on November 27, 1931 in Ironton, Ohio, which sits in a you know bit north of Ashland, Kentucky, and is part of the Appalachian Mountains. Her parents were Otis and Elizabeth Walden Johnson. Otis was a coal miner who worked in the mines. Later, he would move the family down to Florida to work in the railroad. Now, for some reason, they'd moved back to Ohio, because she graduated from South Point High School in 1949. Now, born into hard luck to start with, unemployment, you know, topped 16%. The government was fighting organized crime that it created by enacting prohibition. Average wages were $1,850 a year if you could get work due to the Great Depression. And to beat all that, the farmers of the Midwest were facing a world-changing drought, which became known as the Dust Bowl. Now, which, by the way, folks, lasted until 1939. The country was taking a beating. Being born and raised in the middle of all that, well, I guess some of it bound to rub off on somebody, namely little Betty. 
Now, in November 25th, 1950, Betty married Clarence Malone, who was an auto mechanic, pretty much right out of high school. And in 1952, shortly after the birth of their son, Gary, who was born March 13th of that year, the couple separated. The marriage didn't last long. At some point, she had filed a police report accusing Mr. Malone of assaulting her. That actually went nowhere in, in the courts. And I don't know if the man gave it a second thought at being how lucky he was to be leave when he did and before the real hard luck hit that Betty was known for. Now, a year later, Betty married an alcoholic from New York City named James F. Flynn, who legally adopted her son, Gary. The couple had a daughter who they named Peggy. James would leave Betty for weeks on end, and then Sunt comes staggering back to supposedly stay. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, then he'd get a snoot full and do it all over again. Folks, can you imagine being gone from your family for weeks on end and then walking up to the front door of your house? You know, I'd kind of thought about that while I was researching this. I don't know what I'd say if I walked up to the front door after being gone for weeks. Huh? Maybe ask Mrs. Bentley why she didn't pay the ransom or something, I guess. Heck, I don't know. But <laughs> Mr. Flynn up and died of lead poisoning in 1955. Now, lead poisoning meaning that he was shot to death. He was found curled up like a wet fish on a New York pier. Police in this case thought it was uh, likely gangsters that took him out because Betty was questioned by police during the investigation and admitted to being on the pier during the murder and denied being the one that dropped the hammer on him, though. It was thought at the time, and that time in our history, that women just didn't have the cojones to do a thing like that, especially with a shotgun. Now, I've known several women who ride handy with a shotgun, Mrs. Bentley being one of them. And, uh, in the years following Mr. Flynn's passing, Betty walked around telling people totally different stories about how the poor man met his maker. She said that he'd been killed in a car accident, he was murdered in a New York City pier, and he died on the pier in a snowstorm of exposure because he was sitting in his truck in an alcoholic stupor. Now, the true complete circumstances of his death are, well, you know, completely unknown to this day other than he got a gut full of lead. And in 1964, while working in Jacksonville, Florida, as a beautician, Betty, then 36, married a 29-year-old Navy man named Richard Sills. Now, they lived in a Navy base in a mobile home in Big Coppet Key, Florida, just outside of Key West. Now, folks, that must have been just beautiful, wouldn't you think? Now, the blue waters, white sandy beaches, just living the life. The, <clears throat> the thing that nobody considered here was that uh, hard luck apparently travels right along with Betty like a lightning rod of death. Now, in on April of 8, 1967, police found Mr. Seals shot to death in the bedroom of the couple's home. Betty told investigators that they'd gotten an argument over a bottle of vodka when Dick pulled out a pistol and shot himself right smack in the heart. Folks, that's needing a drink real bad, I would say. But Mr. Seals' death was turned over to NCIS and no autopsy was performed and it was ruled a suicide. Even though investigators on the scene noticed that he'd been shot in the liver and the heart, both. They said that it was a typical suicide. <laughs> the Betty's children, Gary and Peggy, were at home when it happened. They interviewed Peggy, who was 11 years old at the time. Peggy said that she heard her mother arguing with Dick when a gunshot went off. 
Gary said the same, but added that he ran into the room just after hearing the shot and saw blood all over the place. Now, Betty, not willing to give up on love just yet, but no longer wanting to be the sail- in the sailing business, I guess, married an army man this time named Harold Gentry in January 1968. They had a daughter named Kelly the next year, and folks, she's going through men like poop through a goose at this point, I'd think, but their daughter Kelly said that they were very good parents and were great to their children while they grew up. Two years later, Clarence Malone, Betty's first husband, who had went on to remarry and open his own car repair shop, had worked hard to make something out of himself when on November 27th, which happened to be Betty's birthday in 1970, he was found shot to death in his repair shop. He'd been shot in the back of the head, execution style. And, you know, that's what a coincidence that would be because Betty just turned 39 that day. At the time, police theorized that he'd been murdered by a biker gang that he crossed paths with some time before. There is some information out there that I couldn't collaborate that indicates that Clarence and Betty had been remarried after she left Harold high and dry. I couldn't find anything to substantiate that any further, and so we'll just have to take it all with a grain of salt and just maybe a possibility to consider here. Harold had cheated on Betty at some point in their relationship, which might explain why she and Clarence would have been messing around together to start with at that time. But, you know, once again, Betty was never suspected in the homicide. Then, that hard luck had followed Betty around like a shadow struck again in November 1985 when Betty's now 33-year-old son, Gary, was shot to death in his Cleveland area apartment. It just so happened that when Betty was pursuing the paperwork after his death, she found an insurance policy on Gary and collected $10,000 as she was the beneficiary, not Gary's wife. The police never identified Gary's killer. Gary's wife, Cecilia, described Betty as a manipulating bitch, and we'll leave it at that. Needless to say that she uh, thought what happened to Gary was murder, but it ended up being ruled a suicide, of course. At least that's what I read in most of the information I saw. And by 1986, Betty and Harold Gentry, now retired from the Army, were living in Norwood, North Carolina, about 50 miles east of Charlotte, where they had built themselves a little retirement home on land that was given to them by Mr. Gentry's sister. So all was finally good in Betty's world, and they lived happily ever after, folks. That's right. But, yeah, you know better than that, don't you? I can't lie to you. Harold's brother, Al, said that the couple argued constantly, and by July of that year, Betty had asked Harold to move out. On Monday, July 14, 1986, Harold didn't show up for work. Harold, being a retired military man, never missed a day of work. Now, I can attest to this as a veteran myself. We may be morally wounded, but we'll show up for work every time, on time. Don't ask me why. The thought of calling in sick rubs us all the wrong way. I just know it does. <laughs> so, knowing that, they started calling him and got no answer. They finally got a hold of the neighbor who went over to check on him. The neighbor found the back door open, so he walked in on where he found Harold's body laying face down, clutching his chest with his pipe still clenched in his teeth. Now, they would later find that he had been killed the previous day, and somebody had fired six 
38 or 357 Magnum bullets into Mr. Gentry's back, chest, neck, and head. Without the weapon, police said that they couldn't tell exactly what caliber it was due to the holes in the body being the same size for either one. Something doesn't sound right about that to me because a 357 Magnum might have the same size going in, but it uh, was going to blow a whole bigger hole in the back than a 38 would. But that's just me thinking out loud. Harold's brother Al was the first family member on the scene and said that when he saw his brother's body, it was swollen and looked like he'd weighed 300 pounds. Police say that it was due to the decomposition, which had taken place at the time of the death until he was found. Now, the whole place had been ransacked and made to look like Harold had come home to catch robbers in the middle of a robbery. Now, this may have made some sense to if Harold had, hadn't been shot six times. That's the last thing a robber going to do. They just want to get the heck out of there and may pop somebody. But there was a, another oddity. There was no forced entry. So whoever went through all of the trouble to ransack the house also got all lizard lizard brained up and forgot to jimmy the door make it look like they broke in the pathologist who examined harold said that whoever had shot him was literally laying in wait for him and had shot him from a laying position on the floor now that's scary folks the poor man was walking around his house puffing on his pipe when everything just faded to dark on him now betty comes pulling up at the scene claiming to had been out of town and in fact another state when the hard luck came and hit the house this time but dropped everything to dash home when the police rang her telephone their daughter kelly was in college in florida at the time and was dating a guy whose parents had to break the news to her and as to what happened back home they immediately drove her home which was very sweet of them i might say kelly said that the minute she arrived home betty had told the police, said the police were putting the thumb screws to her and uh, wanted to know who she had hired to kill her husband. Kelly added that uh, she so grieved her father's passing that she joined the army herself to honor his memory. Bless her heart. The police never identified the shooter as a result of her fourth husband's untimely, out of the blue, brush with hard luck. Betty enjoyed a $500,000 life insurance payday by spreading the money all over the bed and taking a bath in the $100 bills. Now, whether or not that actually happened, I couldn't tell you, but she's about heartless enough to pull something like that off, and I wouldn't put it past her. But this is going to get deep here in just a minute, folks. Stick around. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. I'll be right back. Now, six years later in 1991, Hard Luck Betty had moved to Augusta, Georgia and started up another hair salon. Now, the 60-year-old got introduced to and married a man named John Newmar, who she'd been dating for about a year when they got married. John had a son and a daughter from his previous marriage. His son, John Jr., said that Betty had isolated his father from the rest of the family and wouldn't allow him to spend time with them or the grandkids. He said that his dad's demeanor had completely changed, and on one of his rare visits to see his father, all he got was a cold shoulder. After having a strong relationship with his dad his entire life, that just plumb devastated him. Nine years into the marriage, while living in Augusta, Georgia, the couple owing $200,000 on 43 credit cards filed for bankruptcy. 
John was worth 300000 when he got married. I guess you can only milk so much time out of the life insurance claim from the last husband before you got to burn the finances to the ground on the current one. Now, God in heaven only knows how you can waste that much money in nine years, but apparently it can be done, folks. Now, they were married for 16 years before the bad luck got all dressed up in its Grim Reaper outfit and came knocking on the Newmore's front door. Mr. Newmore was the picture of health at his wedding day, but to his family, who rarely saw him anymore, his health seemed to take a nosedive as he began to suffer from apparent infections and his body began to shut down. October 25, 2007 was the day that the hard luck come a-calling as Mr. Newmore, at the age of 79, died. His cause of death was listed as sepsis, which was a bacterial blood infection. Betty pounced into action and practically dragged his body to the hearse and rode the to the funeral home and chunked him in the crematory herself despite having paid for a burial plot and a prearranged funeral that he intended to use. Mr. Newmar's children pounced into action too. They believed his conniving wife Betty had poisoned him to death and with arsenic. After all, she hadn't even called him to let him know he'd died. They had to read it in the newspaper. They believed that she had him cremated to avoid an autopsy and all the pesky toxicology reports and stuff. Now, she even refused to give him his ashes so they could bury the poor man or maybe part of him so he could bury part of him. I bet he walked away from his, you know, death scot-free like she did the last one and the time before that and the time before that. Now, there was one thing that Betty hadn't counted on happening, though. Remember Harold Gentry? Now, he had a brother named Al and he was still pissed off about his murder of his brother and and was doing everything in his power to bring down the thunder on the one he thought did it. And you, I can hear you asking now, well, <laughs> who do you think done it? Well, you know for sure that it was hard luck Betty herself, the, the love of death, as she was becoming known. Now, Al said that he knew she'd done it the first time he saw her after the brother's murder when she shagged up to him like a crusty old child-eating witch without a single tear in her eye and said I was in Augusta, Georgia. I didn't have anything to do with your brother's murder. That was an odd statement seeing how the police were still inside trying to figure out exactly what happened and all. Now, police actually had cleared Betty during the usual investigatory process as they just didn't believe that she had anything to do with the murder either. Now, she was sure enough in Georgia they had confirmed that. Now, what the prosecutor prosecutor for the county said was a bit different though he said that they had found out that she'd tried to hire a hitman to take out her husband but that the guy had come forward didn't do it and they were stuck suspecting that she'd hired somebody else but just couldn't find any evidence of who might have done it al gentry spent 22 years hounding the police to do something about betty he never let it go now he said that he ought to he thought that Betty had possibly been running drugs from up from Florida when Harold found out, and so she had him killed to shut him up. Uh, I don't know if that holds water, being that, uh, you know, they were so far in debt, you'd think that if she dealt drugs that they'd be all blinged out and not broke. But who knows? She could have been spending it faster than she made it, which seems to be her pattern. 
Poor Al handed the police, who continued to have nothing to go on until new sheriff, <clears throat> excuse me, came to town named Rick Burroughs, who finally listened to him. Now, Sheriff Burroughs picked up the file on Harold Gentry's murder and within three minutes was ready to go to the prosecutor's office with the case, which led to the case being reopened in January of 2008. This led to more people coming forward to say that Betty tried to hire them to take care of Harold, too, so she could get his $20,000 life insurance money. One of them was an ex-cop. Why the heck he didn't come out earlier, I couldn't answer, because he was offered money and Harold's pickup truck if he'd do it. Betty was arrested in May of 2008 at the age of 76 for solicitation of murder. Al said that this was the happiest day of his life. The entire neighborhood was in a complete shock that this poor little granny woman could be a murderer. A month later, she was dragged into Albemarle County, North Carolina, where she was formally charged with solicitation of murder and had bail set at $500,000. All of a sudden, Al starts receiving death threats over the phone to the point that he started carrying a gun everywhere he went. Now you got to wonder if he wasn't right about this little blue-haired lady being a drug queen pen or something, don't you? Well, watching the poor man on TV in a documentary called Snapped, he looked like he could <laughs> be just a bit paranoid, maybe, but uh, I, who could blame him? But once again, upon <clears throat> searching the old lady's house, police found a plethora of driver's licenses and passports and various names for various states and Dang, she was, or was she uh, actually in the CIA or something? Maybe, I, I don't know. So they began searching those states and names to see if any other murders tied to this woman who might have been a crime in the crime syndicate. Uh, maybe she's a one-woman crime syndicate. I don't know. Hit woman, I don't know what it is. Uh, upon doing all that, they decided to look up Richard Seal's death a bit, maybe look at it a bit closer. And you remember him from the few husbands back being the one that was shot himself twice. The police decided that there was no reason to do that because the statute of limitations had run out on manslaughter, which was probably the best they could do on it. Then they went to look further into her son's homicide, all while Betty was let out after making bail. Yes, and now again, you have to wonder just where the hell that money came from. Al was then fit to be tied, of course. Betty was interviewed at her home where she <clears throat> said that her first husband, as far as she was concerned, uh, she couldn't have done it because she didn't even know he was dead until the police called to tell her. Well, that certainly clears that up, don't it, folks? And she said that her second husband froze to death while sleeping in his truck on the dock. Never mind the shotgun blast that uh, killed him, I guess. Uh, she was and asked uh, uh, about her official police statement as to him being shot and told the reporter, well, I never said that. As to her third husband, she said that she, he committed suicide right there in front of her and she saw him do it. She also didn't know how he came up with the fact that he'd been shot twice because he only fired one shot. Anybody that says any difference, just a lie. Now, take that, detective, the coroner who saw two bullet wounds. She added that the uh, she couldn't control when somebody died. Well, that was God's work. The reporter asked her if she believed in forgiveness and, and forgive and forget. And what she said, you know, you can forgive, but you really can't forget. She said that 
<clears throat> of her last husband that was the, the good husband, but uh, that all the husbands that she had, he was probably only the, the only one who didn't really cheat on her. And she added here that John had been sick for six or seven years and that his children knew that. And that John Jr. has been married six times himself, so don't be pointing finger at her. The reporter went back to John Jr. and asked him about uh, what she'd said. And he replied that, well, at least all my exes are still breathing and they like me. Now, Betty Newmar, while on bail and awaiting trial, dropped over on June 13, 2011, in a Alexandria, Louisiana hospital from what was widely said to be cancer. Uh, before the judicial process could call down the thunder on her little blue-haired head. Now, so everybody that we have discussed here, they, you know, they just hang in balance and none of the victims receive justice, which is just a shame. Uh, that's pretty much where we stand. Now, I hope you got something out of our story today, even though you had to put up with me telling it. But once again, it's another one that needed telling. If you did, then please rate and review the podcast and then whatever platform you're listening on. And don't forget to follow or subscribe, whichever they call it, wherever you listen. Now, come on over to Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend where we talk Appalachian or whatever else you want to bring up. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I'll see you then.